Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, and I am the host of The Interim Whisper. Today's tip of the week is about the role managers have as leaders and how they can set the company tone for inclusion. So one of the things that you can do as a person in HR, your ops, or just as the CEO, you can set up an employee feedback system and use a relevant assessment tool. You can use something as simple as your Google Forms and create a survey there. You want to keep it anonymous. You want to be able to allow your employees to have a voice of their own that's heard and to know that they're safe, that they can submit feedback to you in a safe way with no type of retributions coming on them. You want to be open to their feedback and just make sure that you're really listening to frustrations and any friction that's out there. So welcome to The Interim Whisperer. Our show is all about the future of work and innovation. So welcome to The Interim Whisperer. Our show is all about the future of work. My name is Isabella, and I am so delighted to have on my show today, Victoria, and please tell me, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to let you tell me how to say your last name so I don't slaughter it. Yampolsky. Yampolsky. Thank you. I Now I feel like a pro. So we're going to be talking with you about all different kinds of fun questions, which you have had some of them in advance, but fair game. If you bring it up, then we get to talk about it. So um, we usually kick off our show with five words that you would say describe you and why those five words. Yeah, and uh, when you uh, sent me that question, I thought that that's an amazing question. First of all, thank you so much, Isabella, for inviting me on the show. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about my journey and about why I'm so passionate about finance. Mm. So the five words that uh, describe uh, me the most are passion, creativity, integrity, determination, and intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, I think integrity is how I try to live my life. Uh, I want to be and I am an honest person and I respect others and I treat others the same way that I'd like to be treated. And that honesty and all of the moral values are very important to me. I'm determined. I've been taught this way since I was a child to go after my goals, not to give up. Uh, and I think it helped me immensely in my journey to navigate all of the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, but also on the personal side, immigration from Russia uh, into the United States almost 30 years ago. Um, passion is something that I continuously search for in my life. And that's why I switched my careers a few times. This is what ignites my will to live you know i love the fact that i love what i do and i can feel passionate about it and i can make others find passion in their journeys as well by helping them uh, creativity is part of it i'm a very creative person i write poetry on the side and i have a lot of creative endeavors in addition to uh doing uh finance and uh, helping uh companies with their financial projections and their financial discipline and um i think it's because of the out of the box thinking that uh, I can provide better advice in all of the areas, and it helps me think more, more originally, fresher, quicker, because I'm involved in so many things. 
And that is actually why I chose entrepreneurship in the first place, because when I had corporate jobs in the beginning of my journey, it wasn't creative enough for me. It was very one-sided in terms of the work that I was doing. And only entrepreneurship, where I had to solve problems and come up with new solutions uh, every time, every day across multiple areas, that's where I feel fulfilled and mm. challenged. Yeah, those and, are really uh, good, good value words to describe you. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the last one is intelligence. Uh, you know, I am uh, lucky, you know, this is not something that I've achieved. I'm just lucky to have good genes. But I do believe in training my mind. And so I read a lot. And uh, I talk, I love speaking with uh, people that are smarter, smarter than me, so I can learn from them and enrich my life. And I'm so happy, therefore, to speak to you. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll give a lot of shout outs, I'm sure, during the show for this. So before we go even further, I want to give a shout out to Steve Vilkas, who introduced me to you, and he's with Prepare for VC. I'm pretty sure that's going to be one of the organizations you might want to partner up with. And Jason Krause, I love these guys. They do really great work and just giving them a little shout out and a love there. I love Steve Vilkas. In fact, he just texted me a minute ago. So uh, as if he, he and he doesn't know that we're having that podcast. I don't think that I tell him the specific date. Uh, and then Steve Vilkas has been an amazingly positive force in my life for the past few years. And I'm incredibly grateful for all of the love and kindness and support and energy that he's given me and me hopefully giving him back. Uh, I don't think that, you know, uh, during the pandemic and when the times when we felt so isolated, I would have been in, in a, such a better emotional state that I was because of him. So he helped me tremendously to stay positive, uh, to stay connected, introduced me to many amazing people. I mean, I couldn't be more grateful for Steve. And Jason has been a pleasure as well. Yeah, they are really, Steve in particular, though, they're very, very positive men, super smart guys. But I'm going to tell you, every time you you are acknowledged by Steve, it feels like a warm blanket around you. Yeah. 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 And then sometimes he would just uh, send me a message saying, hey, you know, I'm just sending you a hug. And it feels so nice because right? not, I don't have many people in my work life who would just send me a hug. And it's very nice to get a hug when, you know, even if your day is going good, it's nice to have a hug. Oh, but yeah. especially when you may be challenged by something or maybe you're not as motivated or maybe something is not going to plan. And then you get a hug and suddenly it's a it's like a ray of light. Did you know that um, people will have seven careers in their life, but they also need seven touches a day to feel appreciated, valued, and loved? I find that interesting. And if those people that don't have somebody around them, I feel really sorry for them because it's like, we, we need lots of love. That's for sure. So yeah. um, let's go ahead and start with the fact that you shared that you're from Russia. Um, that alone is a big deal to leave one's country and come over here. I know that had to have been, you know, certainly hard. And then when you come to a country, your English is spectacular also. So you've been here long enough. You are officially like born here just to, <laughs> like, that's how good Thank it you. is. Yeah. I don't Thank know if you. that's considered a microaggression, but I hope not because it's like, you're really good. So on a scale of one to 10, how hard is it to make a scalable business model? I'm throwing that one out there because I know these are conversations that you and I had had in the beginning and you are teaching in so many great places, the 
the Dell Women in Entrepreneurship Program and your starting stuff. We have so much that we're going to get to cover here. So scalable business model. How hard is it to build? Well, we know the statistics where more than 90 startups fail. And so just based on that statistics, it is very hard. I think I wouldn't do justice to all the entrepreneurs out there if we didn't acknowledge all the hard work and grit and determination it takes to build a great company. There are certain things one can do to make their journey easier. And of course, it makes a difference whether it's your first startup or second startup. Just like when a baby, uh, when the baby learns to walk, they stumble when they have first taken a few steps. Similarly, when an entrepreneur first builds their venture, they stumble because they don't know certain things. And the better parents they have around them in the form of mentors, advisors, other teammates, investors, their support network, other fellow entrepreneurs, the better they learn to walk more freely and not mm -hmm. fall. But it's not possible not to fall. I think anybody who can who's going to tell you that they never fall <laughs> is going to be lying. So yeah, it is are. very hard. But I would say it is easier if you have certain elements as uh, part of your team, as part of your venture, if you have prior experience, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people have a fear of money. I'm pretty sure you encounter that a lot. I don't know if you, can you tell me if you think women have more fear about money than men? And this was not a planned question in all fairness, but I think that typically it might be that women might say they have a fear of it. Um, do you, what do you think? And I love that you're a woman in this industry so we can dispel myths. Yeah. I mean, I think that women's relationship with money comes from their family, right? And it's mm -hmm. not even about raising investment for their startup. It could be how they treat their personal investments. And I think it comes from the fear of the unknown and lack of confidence. And I can even tell a story that I encountered for myself because I'm a woman and I'm human and I'm not, you know, I'm still subject to the same fears and doubts that everybody. So a few years ago, I needed to decide if I needed to incorporate my company. And this was an accounting question. And this was beyond the level of my expertise, even though I know accounting, I teach accounting, I know finance. And because of those things, I thought I should be able to figure it out. And I could not because actually it's not that simple. And until I admitted that I need help and I went and I got qualified advice, I just basically felt paralyzed and I actually did not make any decisions for a few years. And that had negative consequences because, you know, obviously with the wrong structure, I paid uh, more money in taxes. Now, this is a very small thing, but I think it's telling because the same can be extrapolated to any woman who doesn't feel confident about bookkeeping, raising money, financial projection, valuation, if that's the fear of the unknown and almost the pressure to do everything yourself and uh, the fear to make a mistake that makes us paralyzed and actually holds us back from achieving our dreams. And um, in the new program that I'm actually going to be launching, teaching strategic and financial planning for women entrepreneurs, one of the things we're going to address are those beliefs and how those beliefs manifest themselves and how we run our businesses. What does it mean if you have a fear of the unknown? What does it mean if you have a fear of failure? What opportunities are you going to pass by and not take advantage of because you have those convictions that you think may only be damaging you or not damaging you, affecting you in your personal life. No, they're affecting you in your business life too. So yes, I think women 
have a more difficult relationship with money. It comes from the lack of confidence. It doesn't help that we see very discouraging statistics about only 2% of women founders raising capital. We know that going in, we know that our chances are lower. If you're a diversity founder, your chances are even lower. If you're a foreign founder, immigrant founder, your chances are even lower. It is discouraging to feel that you're you know, there are biases against you before you even doing anything, but this contributes to your fear of failure and you're not presenting yourself potentially in the best light and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. You know, that is all really good stuff. I would suggest that when you bring in, um, when you have these things, because I used to have that same fear of, of money and talking about it and just having to deal with it. So having some people that are women that are willing to, you know, strip off that mask and say, yeah, that was me. And let me tell you all the mistakes I made. Don't make these mistakes, you know, do these things that would certainly validate what it is that you are bringing to the masses. Um, that would be one thing. And then you also said something else is that, you know, women are, uh, traditionally they, they don't receive funding, much funding. And that is true too. I am so lucky that I get to be around people, women and allies, men that are allies that want to change that. And that's, that's everything. So I am excited for you and for what it is that you're, you're doing here also. Um, so let's see, simplest financial skill that people should embrace that will change their thinking. Oh, I have one, but before you start, I want to share one. Have you heard of this app called, um, let me get it open here. It is Elevate. I think so, but that's, is that a meditation app? Or? No, it's no? actually no. Uh, um, Elevate Your Mind in, oh. in the sense of like, it teaches you how to have better math skills and speaking skills, mm. memory skills and writing skills, all of those. So I downloaded that app and that was the simplest thing for me. And I was just practicing my math, my division, my percentages. And it's something that's free and I was able to take advantage of it, but I can't wait to hear what your suggestions are. So what's the simplest financial skill that we should embrace? Well, um, finance is, I would say, a mystery to most people. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, if we're going to talk about a skill that is easy to embrace as a skill that's going to change your life, those are two different things. I would say a very important concept that every founder should know is the difference between cash and income. Oh, yeah. Now, it's very often equated to each other, but they're not the same thing. And therefore we have two different financial statements, one of which tracks how cash moves and uh, depicts liquidity of the company. And that's a cash flow statement. And another one is a profit and loss statement, which converts our income into the net profit. Now, uh, and by income, I mean sales, right? Which converts our revenue into net profit. Now, if I'm going to talk about a skill that's going to improve one's insight into one's business, I would say it's the ability to really interpret your financial statements. And by that, I don't mean by looking at the financial statements and saying, okay, my revenue went up, my costs went down, or my costs went up, or I need money. But it's understanding how this relates to your strategy. What are the numbers telling you about how your business is doing? 
Is your strategy working? Which parts are working? What should you focus on? What should you change? What should you do more of? If you can really imagine, you know, one of my favorite books is a book called The Elegant Universe, and it's by the physicist Brian Greene. And it's about string theory, which is a unifying theory, right? It's a theory for now that can bring together general relativity and quantum mechanics. And the reason why it's called the elegant universe is because everything is done in our universe in such an elegant way. And then everything was just a little bit out of whack. Our universe would flow apart in pieces, right? That's why it's elegant. And that's how I think about financial modeling. I think it's an elegant symphony of numbers. And if you can understand it, you will be able to know how it will take your business to the stars. You know what I like about how you just presented that is it sounds like things that are soothing, you know, because music can either soothe us or give us more energy or whatever it is that the emotion is that you're looking for. But music, I think is something that just about everybody understands and they understand that it can, can, um, give you peace. Right. And knowing your numbers, like what you're describing is, uh, an easy way for me to interpret that information in a way I hadn't thought about. So I really like that you are giving it in as simplest terms where we know that music soothes the savage soul. And if you're upset about money, just think about it as an orchestra, right? Well, and create a plan that would calm your fears, right? So you can yeah. have a peace of mind. If you have proper foundation in place, if you have proper processes in place, then you have time to react to market feedback and to make the right decisions and avoid all the stress that comes with being fearful of running out of money and not raising investment in time, not knowing what to do, et cetera, having to lay off people, right? More than what you intended to, et cetera, et cetera. That's why, by the way, I have plans in my virtual background because when people come to me to talk about finance, I want them to feel peaceful and calm because that's what they're going to get by working with me. That's good. <laughs> and, clarity, and clarity as well. I think that finance brings you clarity to your decisions. It helps to build that link between your vision and, and concrete measurable results. Hmm. And you mentioned a lot of things that people uh, don't really realize many times in a personal life. We don't think about, well, how much we use this term in business, how much runway do you have until you run out of money? Right. But people don't think about that in their personal expenses. I bet that's one of the things that you use, because if you relate it in a personal way, like how you're describing, then I would be able to understand, oh, runway. Oh, that's how much money do I have saved? That's what you're really saying is how much is there in case stuff happens, right? All I can say is that anything can be explained conceptually without too much math. Brian Greene was able to explain string theory, where sometimes you can't even understand the theorems that they're trying to prove. If he was able to explain it without any math formulas, mm -hmm. I can surely do it with finance, which is a lot simpler in concepts. And it is my mission. It is my mission to demystify finance so that every founder out there knows how to use it to make their dreams come true. That is like like why I created the startup station. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. And I looked up Brian Greene's name while you were talking to find the, the book. And I see that there it is. It's on the um, 
it's definitely available anywhere. But just so our listeners know, his last name is spelled G-R-E-E-N-E with an E on the end. And it's the typical way we think of spelling Brian, B-R-I-A-N. So I'm going to go and check that book out. That might be a really good book that you require everybody to read going into your program. I don't know if that's what you do, that would be a good start. That would be, that would be a pretty intense. It's 400 pages with a very small font. Oh, but if they goodness. can do that, they can definitely pass any startup station course. Yeah, that's for sure. Maybe you can take that book and rewrite it into simpler terms. You that's know? true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, that, that's as, as my next project. After mm -hmm. after I write a book on financial modeling, which is my goal in about a few years to put everything that I'm teaching and uh, to put all of my work into a book. But after that, we can uh, I can work on uh, the elegant universe. Uh, maybe yeah. the book will be called the elegant finance. I yeah, like that's the word what I was elegant. Thinking. Elegance, uh, elegant uh, financial modeling. Yeah, elegant financial modeling. That's good. Stick with that one. All right. So where did you go to school? How did you get started? How did you end up in the United States? All of those good things. Uh, well, we came because we were, uh, were political refugees from Russia in 1996. And I went to Cornell to pursue computer science and math, which was, uh, from my understand, an achievement because I didn't really know any universities except Harvard and Yale. And I think I only applied to computer science in Cornell because computer science in Cornell was ranked number three. And I was in Boston and MIT was where my parents were, so I didn't want to go there. And Carnegie Mellon, which was a school number two, that's where my dad was. My, my mom and my stepfather were in Boston. My dad was in Pittsburgh, so I didn't want to go to Pittsburgh to be with my dad when I already didn't want to go to Boston to be with my mom. That's why I chose Cornell. And that's, uh, you know, it was so overwhelming coming from Russia to see so many universities. There were, I think, more than 3,000 universities and to choose the ones to um, where I wanted to apply and then to go through the application process. And without knowing English, actually, I did not speak much English at uh, that time. And it seems now, uh, I don't even know how I did it. I remember I used to call colleges and I would ask them when I can apply. And I couldn't really understand what they were saying. So I was phrasing questions in a way where they would just say yes or no. So yes or no, I could understand anything they would say after it would be like a, a broken to me. Hmm. So I got into Cornell uh, and I pursued computer science. And, and about when I was a junior or senior, I realized that I didn't want to be a programmer. I wanted to go more on a business side. So I went to do IT consulting. When I did IT consulting for Capgemini, again, I realized that that wasn't where my passion was. But because I was in financial services, I thought, well, maybe I should go in finance. So I went to Columbia Business School and then I went to Wall Street and I spent three years working for Deutsche Bank, where I analyzed multiple companies looking for investments within their capital structure. It was an amazing experience for my uh, subsequent work. But again, working in a corporate environment wasn't creative enough for me and I didn't like the hours. So when I had my son, I quit and I started a media company. I wanted to try my hand in producing movies. Because what I didn't mention is that, that in my life for eight years, I've also been doing acting. So it was always this combination of technical skills and creative skills that were always woven together. So whenever I, in my life, I went too much into one direction or another, I felt dissatisfied. So I decided to start a film company and raise a lot of money for a slate of films. I wanted to solve all of the problems of India, indie filmmaking. And I made all of the mistakes that a first time entrepreneur makes. 
I didn't do enough due diligence on my team. I tried to raise too much money. I didn't validate product market fit. And uh, I think my main misconception was that I was very used to being right up to that point in my life. You know, I didn't really fail. I got into good schools. I got good jobs. I was an A-level student. And I never really encountered a situation where I was just plain wrong. And it's my arrogance that contributed significantly to this failure. But at the same time, it was absolutely critical to my growth as a human being and as an entrepreneur. And it led me to creating this company because I realized that the same uh, problem that existed in the film where film producers were so passionate about their projects and about bringing their vision to reality and they didn't think at all about who's gonna watch those projects or who's gonna and how those projects will be distributed. It's the same way startup founders often get enamored with their you know, new app or a new product or a new uh, web application and they don't really think about how to go to market or who their customer is or are they solving a real problem or are they solving a problem big enough to justify creating business out of it. Right? Do they have um, a justification for actually going out and raising capital? And that's why the Startup Station was born, where I could help founders to realize their dreams. And that, you know, the funny thing is that one of my clients now is a film fund. So I really come full circle. It just took a long time that I'm now advising a film fund on their strategy. And all the experiences that I had up to this point really um, enable me to do this. And I've advised many, many, many startups in the past 10 years across mm. more than 15 industries and also different countries. I think failure is one of the best teachers, honestly. And I know that I've tried several businesses also. Now I was a teacher, but when I tried a business, I would sit here and go, okay. Some of them were like, you know, off the shelf things. If you're selling, whether it's makeup or whatever that you want to do books, but I learned a lot from those uh, things that I liked, things that I didn't like. And I don't know if you find that to be true. You, you're very eclectic. You have so many interests because if you go from acting, which can be helpful in sales, I would think, but then you're also over here on the side of finance. And then you have this other side that's geared towards, you know, programming and processes, you know, that's, you've got all of the synapses going on inside of your brain, but was there anything that was a failure for you and that really provided that best lesson for you? I don't know. I don't think finance people experience that that low. <laughs> uh, well, when I didn't raise money for my production company and I let everybody down and we had to give back all the intellectual property, all the screenplays were optioned, that was definitely a blow to my ego. And I learned that I'm not always right. And for me, that yeah. was a very big lesson. I think that's the best lesson that I could possibly learn. And I learned that I need to ask people for help and respect mm -hmm. their opinion. And that sometimes it's not going to match mine. And it that could be the right opinion, the, the one that doesn't match mine. Um, I would say that programming, even though I didn't do it, I didn't write a line of code after I graduated and that was a long time ago even though I may not look at but it was quite a long time ago it helps me every day and it helps me in the way how I analyze things it helps me in the way how I build financial models I think of financial models as the company brain and 
the ability to link strategic decisions through the business logic to financial results is what makes the business models that I teach how to build and I build so unique and so useful. When you build them on the higher level and you obscure that logic, then you can't really understand what has happened with your company and how did you end up in a financial situation that you have. Sometimes okay. it's obvious, but a lot of the times because of the factors involved, it's not. And so it helps me immensely in the way how I structure my thinking, in the way how I create my content. You know, it's a program in the way how I even structure my day. I structure it like an algorithm where I'm so highly efficient and I pull activities together. And the day before I think through what I'm going to do the next three days and I plan it out. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though I don't physically write in Java or C++, the skills uh, help me greatly. And then finance, you know, finance is extremely useful as a business mm -hmm. intelligence tool. I would not going to say that it's uh, the only useful skill. There is marketing, there is product development, there is operations, there is human resources. Everything is important. For me, finance, uh, because it has a math component and I love math, is what I'm passionate about. And the story that I can tell about the human dream. I think that the one of the best things that I got from, um, I can't remember the book that I read it from, but they were talking about how the relationship between finance and computing, uh, computers or computer programming was very tuned in with each other because you could tell what the market trends were going to be. That's what you focus on. And so it was really um, useful for being able to be more predictive and how they would spend money and what they would spend money on, whether it was a hiring people or if it was, you know, adopting a new platform for the company. Um, I would like to learn that. I would like to be seeing it more from that forecasting side so I could be not spending based on what the current snapshot looks like, which is a balance sheet, right? The balance sheet is the snapshot of your current financial position. But yeah, that's why you build the projection for the next few years to see how your company can grow and evolve and to really understand how to get from point A to point B, what's going to be required, how much capital, who you need to bring on board, what milestones you need to meet, et cetera. Yeah. So you need to start from your current position. Of course, you need to take that into account and you need to be realistic. You can't, you know, if you're a small startup, you can't say I'm going to spend a hundred million dollars on marketing because I want to be no. like a very big company. So it needs to be in consideration of your product development, labor, um, intellectual property, if there are any timelines and patterns that need to be met and financial constraints. Mm -hmm. Something that I... I saw a lot of companies doing um, here in Orlando is companies that seemed really solid, but yet they still had to lay people off because of the way that the, you know, the hiring process and how people were buying and spending. And these were technology companies. I was surprised that they would have to lay off one of them. Um, it was an influencer marketing company had to lay off at, they said 30%. That's a lot of people, you know, so many people. And I felt really bad for them because I know that these women are smart. They're really uh, wise and frugal with that. But I went, is there something that could be seen so that they would have been going, okay, well, let's hold off hiring for a little bit longer. So they would not have had to lay anybody off. Or, have you seen that? What are your thoughts? 
Um, well, uh, my thoughts are that technology companies typically have a high operating leverage. What it means is that they have a lot of fixed costs, and that's why they're more sensitive to revenue fluctuations. So when the revenue drops by, uh, let's say, 5%, their profit margin, because of the high fixed costs, can drop by 20 or 40%. You know, we're not going to get into the numbers, just comparatively speaking, by a lot more. And that's why they typically have a lot of cash on the balance sheet to withstand those economic uh, downturns. And that's why they may have to uh, fire a significant uh, portion of their uh, labor force uh, because they just cannot cover those costs given the, their cost structure. So sometimes you can't always do, you know, predict it, right? You can't always avoid it. Now, could you, if they had known when the recession was coming, you know, if they could time it exactly and they wouldn't have to uh, necessarily lose any revenue by not hiring the people right because if they could make money in the meantime and then fire people it could still make sense to uh, to do what they did in order to support revenue growth and then when the economy changes then then again they have to do what they have to do it's not really personal to the people that are being affected by it it's just a business reality so I think company-wise, you know, from the company perspective, if they chose not to hire more people, they may have lost more money overall because they wouldn't take advantage of all the extra revenue during the good years they could have made. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. It does. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I know that was something that many people have um, struggled with. The fact that yeah. they had to let go of some of their you know, they really value these people. And it, it, even though yeah. it's not personal, it is personal because these are people yeah. you get, you know, their, their family to a certain extent. For smaller companies, it's uh, harder. And then, you know, if it's a key person and it's, it's actually dangerous for companies sometimes, because oh, yeah. it takes time to replace them. So one of the, uh, tips that I give to companies is uh, even when you have a downturn, make sure you retain your key employees. Sometimes you have employees that are easier to replace, maybe they're less qualified, haven't been with the company for that long, whatever the reasons are. But those employees that are uh, key, those are, you know, those are good investments, even if it may affect your bottom line for mm -hmm. uh, a few years or months. Yeah, you make a good case for making sure that you're doing some kind of cross training and you're um, always creating a career path for a potential successor into that because sometimes people retire, sometimes people go, no, I don't want to do this anymore. They just decide they want to go at home or maybe they want to work part time. And then if you've been grooming that person to take that role, you can do a job share. There's so many options. Absolutely. I mean, I think culture, you know, it's not enough to say, to said about how important culture is. And sometimes it becomes a dirty word or, you know, what is the culture? Mm -hmm. Culture, it's really, you know, it's like when you ask me what describes me as a person, it's the same. What describes you as a company? And it affects everything, the people you hire, how you communicate with customers, how you communicate with your vendors, strategic partners, investors, other stakeholders. I think it's incredibly important. And part Part of that culture is managing employee growth and making sure that retention is high so that you don't lose the talent and you can attract talent. Because ultimately, no captain sails alone, right? No company can succeed just based on one person. It takes many people. And the better they work together, 
and the happier they are, the more appreciated they feel, fulfilled, uh, and motivated, the better results are going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk some more about your company and what it is that you're doing there with Startup Station. Tell us what it is. When did you start it? How did you uh, move it forward? All of those good things. Sure. I started my company after my film venture folded in uh, 2013. And it started as a consulting company where I helped startups, very young startups that were just uh, beginning to fundraise with their financial modeling and valuation. As uh, the company grew, I modeled different industries and I started working with founders in different countries. And in 2015, I started teaching finance to entrepreneurs and I discovered because of my acting, I absolutely love it. It's like I love any public speaking opportunity. And uh, over the next three years, I created a 14 hour curriculum for entrepreneurs with no finance experience to explain the basics of financial modeling, accounting and valuation and startup finance to them. And over the time through right now, more than a thousand founders have taken our courses that are now online and have been able to build their own financial models because at that stage, not everybody can afford to hire somebody and people are very conscious of money. Of course, it takes more time to do it this way, but for some people, that's what they prefer. And this is uh, the option that's available to them in general. Um, I think it's important for every founder to know a little bit of finance, but it's not important for every founder to know how to do financial modeling, but to understand how to talk to your CFO, to understand how to talk to your finance team, to be able to give them the right information. This is absolutely key. And so this is the third, I would say, stage of evolution of the startup station where I began working with very young companies, then I expanded into education, and now I work with companies that are 10 years in business or you know more than a few years in business, and I can really guide them on their financial strategy with turnarounds and rollouts and different products, et cetera. So the startup station, to sum it up, is an education and financial advisory platform for startups and small businesses, and we have a lot of expertise even in uh, companies that are pre-revenue, our expertise is how to link strategy to financial outcomes. You know, what you're talking about is financial fluency and the ability, I've taken a programming class only because I wanted to have conversational skills and understand terminology with programmers. The same applies with what you're saying here. You know, you don't have to love finance, but if you're going to have a CFO or a CRO or whatever, you need to make sure that you understand just the basic vocabulary. And that's what I'm understanding that you're providing as insight as to that. I'm curious as to what ability level that you designed it on, because most, this is something that I taught 10th and seventh grade English. And one of the things that came out from those years of teaching is that most things like newspapers and some regular magazines are built around a seventh grade, eighth grade reading ability level. I find that, I don't think that's insulting, quite frankly. I find that really good because when you're talking about ability level, you're talking about sometimes language barriers and then the fact that some people may not have even graduated from middle school, but yet they're running a business and they're wicked smart. So I feel like there's this place of having a simpler um, comprehension ability for curriculum, very helpful. I don't know if you did that and took that into account because I know you're international. You've worked with people all over the world. So it seems like maybe that might've been a strategy. 
Uh, I designed the curriculum assuming they know nothing about finance. Perfect. But I did assume that they know basic math. I didn't think about the grade level, but I assumed that they graduated from college. Yeah. But I guess if I think about it, they may have just needed to graduate from high school in terms of what they need to know in order to understand the curriculum, because everything is presented conceptually. Uh, and, you know, you do need to do some basic, you know, multiplication, division, exponents, um, subtraction, addition, you know, basic math operations, but it's more about um, creating your business plan and understanding how to convert that into a financial plan. So it doesn't require any prior knowledge. Hmm. Well, we're going to take a break. Uh, we could be talking about finance for the whole show, but I want to make sure we take a break to acknowledge our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And we are back to the second half of our show with Victoria Yampolsky. Tell me I said it right, please. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah, Thank you're you. <laughs> a natural, natural oh. sayer of uh, uh, Eastern European names. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, favorite quote that you live your life by? I really like Tom uh, Thomas Edison's quote where I haven't failed. I just uh, found hundred thousand ways that won't work oh i love that so, so i think that's that whenever something doesn't work for me this is what i tell myself on it <laughs> yeah that's good i'm gonna remember that one too um what is the one skill that you believe everyone should focus on that brings them and others value i think it's the ability to emphasize to empathy and uh, it's the ability to listen and to really understand another's point of view and to accept it as valid. Because you already know what you're thinking. You already know what you're right, that you're right in whatever you want to do. It's when the disagreements occur. Uh, that's when it's important to listen to others. And also in decision making, I believe that the best decisions are made when there is diversity of thought. I like your answers the best. I've heard a lot of answers to that question, I can tell you, but I really like the fact that you mentioned the diversity of thought and just genuinely listening. Um, it's an over, it's an over, what is the word I would want to use? It is not recognized for the value that it has and people don't demonstrate genuine listening, active listening as much as they should. Well, everybody likes to talk about themselves. My best conversations with clients are is when they talk for 55 minutes after one hour, and then I tell them something for five minutes, and then they tell me in the end that they had a good conversation with me. I find it very funny. <laughs> but I think that was a conversation that was well conducted on my part. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that, well, a lot can be said by saying nothing and just listening, right? And you can learn a lot, you know exactly what to say in the end. You learn yeah. so much about the person. So I think uh, 
Uh, but it's not just, you know, in sales processes where it's important. I think, you know, when you're working with people, when uh, in your personal interactions, uh, you know, whenever you disagree, this is when you should take a step back and listen to what the other person is thinking. That is how you can get to a win-win arrangement. It's not by pushing your own point of view. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. So you and I had talked before we even got on this show. And typically in the second half of the show, we uh, go into the future of work and what is that going to look like? You gave me a recommendation to go and watch Black Mirror. I have only watched two and a half seasons and I honestly can't watch it anymore because it is just so upsetting in this sense of ethical dilemmas. It, it's it's mesmerizing. It's it's thought provoking. It's provocative, you know, in so many ways, but it is also disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Something that seems like a really good technological improvement can actually have devastating consequences. For those who uh, don't know, Black Mirror is a series created by an English uh, screenwriter, and I guess a futurist, Charles uh, Brooker, I believe, and Booker, Brooker. And uh, it's about, you know, it's a, uh, a series of completed stories. They're typically one hour long about different phenomena. Something that may actually happen, it's very believable that it can happen in our real life and what that would mean, what consequences it can have on our interactions and our happiness. I find it um, an interesting conversation to have now, especially now that we're all so busy with developing AI and making it better and better and faster, et cetera, without perhaps taking a step back and thinking, why are we doing what we're doing and what right. impact it can have on humanity? It's, it's almost like it becomes a, a pursuit to be God, to be yes. so all-knowing, right? Yeah. It's an ego to be powerful. And in fact, there is one episode um, that um, that I remember where a woman created a robot to replace her dead husband. And the robot, you know, they took all of the husband's communications. I don't know if you watched that episode yet. I didn't. I uh, actually and, started backwards, just so you know. For some oh, reason, I started five, four, and I got through um, season three halfway. And they're, oh. they're all truly ethical dilemmas uh i saw anyway but keep going i haven't seen this one this is Maybe from the, this is probably from the uh, seasons the, the ones that i remember uh and um and so basically they take ai and they download all of the communication you know messages phone calls into the neural network and so this robot um looks exactly like the dead husband begins communicating with the woman and she gets eventually extremely confused and so that episode maybe came out like eight years ago. And three years ago, there was an AI that a few uh, actually Russian developers developed because one of their founders died in a car accident and they couldn't really reconcile themselves with the thought that he's gone. And they developed that AI. Okay, it wasn't a robot that looked like that guy, but it was a chat where they could intelligently communicate with that that person and i'm sure that did not help their healing mm -hmm. but it's actually you know it was just funny to me that something that seemed you know eight years ago we we're like oh that's a cute story you know that's interesting let's talk about how we would react to it and then it happened five years later 
So we're not so far from what's being described in those episodes as we think. I've said this on other shows, but I, I unequivocally believe that all of this is happening and it's behind the scenes and we don't even know what's going on. We, yep. we live in a world that we think, oh yeah, uh, everything is, is perfect here. Not really perfect, but you know, what you don't know doesn't hurt you. Yep. So there was, when we were doing some research as to when the uh, internet was actually even being invented, it goes back even further than that. It goes back into uh, computers being invented in 1950s, before we even had the first computer or an iPhone or anything. So I absolutely believe that the things that we see in science fiction, they probably already have been created um, they're being tested in secret places that we don't know about. And if somehow they come out, I think that a lot of things um, that come into fruition are from science fiction shows. So whether it's The Matrix, a lot of those Black Mirror episodes had something being drilled into a person or plugged into a person, just like The Matrix. Scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's why I like the show, you know, so much. I think he's uh, somebody needs to start raising these issues, uh, not on some technology conferences that not many people get to go to, or you know, blogs that maybe many people don't read because it's in the AI block and about ethics of AI. I mean, it needs to be really made accessible to a wider audience so we can all think about it and we can all make some impact. And you know what I think we should do. Um, I think we should start a book club and <laughs> and we should throw out their license and read one book a month. And it could be anything from like what we're talking about here, ethical dilemmas, should this be to finance, to HR, it could be all of our specialties and, and just even more. I'm, I'm, let's do I'm it. serious. I'm all for it. I'm serious. I'm serious too. Okay. I'm serious too. We'll let's set it do, up as like it. maybe a, a Twitter group or something like that. Yes. I, I, I definitely could use an extra motivation to read more. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I think that we could start it with the, the book that you said that was um, Brian. Um, what's his right, name? The Elegant Green. Universe. Yeah, that yeah. would be a, a good one to start. Having, yeah, have a lifter. A Let's Hello. hope not that everybody will not leave the club right away. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a little too heavy. You're right. Given yeah. you said that it's small print and it's a lot of words. <laughs> I I literally like uh, when I read this book, I feel my brain expanding. I feel I'm getting smarter <laughs> when I'm like, wow, I'm able to understand these concepts. Uh, these are not uh, easy concepts, but yeah. he explains it in a way where it's possible after you read it a few times. Okay, so we might have to start with a different book. Just yes, so maybe know. a different book, but but also the one that can be thought provoking and about oh yeah, yeah. dilemmas like blindness. I don't know if you read that one. No, um, no, it's uh, Jose. He won um, a prize for it. Um, it's about a world that's gone blind, except one woman, or like I believe one person did not go blind. It was some disease that affected everybody, and and what happened with people. Oh, wow. I've got the metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. And it's by Brian, uh, Matthew Ball. So mm -hmm. that's the one that that's I have right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. the one that I'm going to read next. That sounds okay. definitely interesting. Well, then I'm ahead because I'm only two chapters in. So 
So that's good. But it does. I'm going to tell you, I, I took that book and I started highlighting it. And I, that's where I read, well, they were starting the internet back in 1950. <laughs> okay. So, you know, there's all of these references to what the meta center was that far back. And if you think that's like what, 60 something years ago. So if that's where they are and we're over here in this, what can happen in 2030? And that's typically where this conversation is, is focused on. So just take your best estimate. What do you think 2030 is going to look like? You can pick remote working, you can pick robots, you can pick AR, VR. I know we touched on it with certainly Black Mirror, but I think there's a movie too called Black Mirror, right? And it's there is a movie, right? Well, it has a name uh, where you can actually choose what choose happens the in the movie. Yeah, not that I would say it's the weakest. His first two seasons are probably the strongest, and then it's a little, maybe third season. It's a little bit worse after that, but the movie is the weakest in my opinion. But yes, there is a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there is the movie itself. Um, yeah. So I would say, you know, I've been working from home for uh, a very long time, way before it was accepted and popular. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm very happy to see that now, even in the big companies where it wasn't accepted to work from home, it's now accepted. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people now choose where they go to work. Maybe they just go for big meetings. So I believe that's going to continue. It's going to become even more flexible. Uh, I do see value in in-person human interaction. So uh, in the absence of us devising some AR, VR uh, alternatives where we can feel we're, you know, as if we're in the same physical space and we can, uh, I guess, understand uh, how each person looks in a physical space, I would say meetings will stay and they will be important. Uh, but of course, you know, a lot of the business already is done remotely and uh, it will only continue. And I think uh, we'll get to a point where everybody will be free to choose. That is my, you know, vision. I like to work the way I work and I would like that for everybody. Everybody works very differently. Some people prefer to go to the office. Some people prefer to stay home. Some people prefer to take big breaks. Some people prefer to work nonstop. I believe that to reach your full potential, you need to be left to your own devices. Yeah, I not agree. force something on you know on you. Personally, I found it very, very. Um, it was depressing to have to be confined to a a space and not be able to go and be around people. I am mm -hmm. not kidding. It was extremely depressing for me. So. Yeah. I was willing, I worked out of a co-working space and the, it was a, a nonprofit group, but I had said, listen, I'll go run the place. Uh, you know, I'll be the person you guys never have to go in. And sure enough, I got paid to go in and run the place in that instance, because none of the staff wanted to go in. But for me, it was the division between work and home was very important to me and the ability to be around other people, even if it's strangers walking on the street and seeing them was still very valuable. So yes, I totally get what you mean. Yep. Yeah. Whenever I want to see humans, I go to a nearby cafe where uh -huh. I see I have business meetings, but yeah, I, I like working from home because I've been doing it for, you know, such a long time, but I have a lot of friends who feel like you where uh, they miss the office and they like going to the office. I think it'll end up being something that's more of like um, just giant 
I want to say community areas with a yeah. kitchen mm -hmm. and you can go and then there will be conference rooms. You don't necessarily need to have a desk, but it's just a place to gather and have people together and feel like, oh yeah, there's people here. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, in-person meetings, you know, even if it's once a month or once every two months, they make a lot of difference in terms of you just developing trust and understanding the other person more and not talking about work. I believe that, um, you know, if people work together, they should also talk like human people about other things yeah, because like, it what just else? Yeah. as friends, you know, because it makes them again, you know, have better listening skills, which mm -hmm. is important uh, at times when uh, there is a disagreement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally get it. Totally get it. So one of the other questions that I have here for you is also best mentoring advice that you would want to pass on to our listeners. Yes. Uh, so what I say is the following. Don't be afraid to dream big even if your dream seems unrealistic and not been done before, it doesn't matter. It's just important to focus on why you want to do it. And that why has to be bigger than your ego, any financial rewards you may get, uh, or any um, vanity rewards you may get. It needs to be focused on bettering the world and making the world a better place. And then uh, if you're not afraid to dream big for something that can change the world, I would say the next piece of advice would be ask for help. Know that where you don't know and don't do it alone. If you have a good person, if you have a good support network where it's a mentor, where it's an advisor, where it's just a women's entrepreneurship group, it will help you tremendously so much to develop resilience, create and control of your emotions. And ultimately it's that that will make you succeed or not. It's not, you know, a specific product or a specific venture that you're going to try. Mm, that is really good too. It is important because you don't get through, none of us get through life by ourselves. We, we are made for relationship. I've said that many times on my shows, but it's true. Yeah. You know, that's why, you know, one introduction leads you to another person that can lead you to another person. Just like what we opened the show with Steve introduced me to you, you introduced me to Hamp, you know, and it's just like one of those things you, you don't know. Well, I think it's arrogant to say, I don't know what I don't know. I mean, to, arrogant is the word I'm using. Because many times people will think that they know a lot, but there's so much you don't know. So if you sit here and stay on that side of what you, gee, I don't know everything. It's yeah. a safe place to be. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. One so, thing. Uh, I mean, yeah. even as kids, we have parents, right? We're not alone. And uh, yeah. and I, another thing, actually, I, I will mention about women is that um, women don't ask for help statistically as much as men. No. And uh, it's because uh, I think we have this thing that we have to, we're multitaskers, we have to do everything ourselves. We're in our homes, we may have more responsibility than um, the other party. And uh, somehow it translates into wanting to do everything yourself as an entrepreneur, and that's not right. In fact, I would say in, as in entrepreneurship, you have to delegate everything that's not your core expertise so that you can really focus on adding value to the company because it's your time that's the most expensive asset. And not a lot of entrepreneurs realize that they think it's the money, but it's your time. Oh, yeah. 
because <laughs> time is the one thing you cannot get back. Money will come and go, you know, yep. other things, people will still come and go, but time. Yep. There's only 24 hours in a day. You don't get a minute more yes. or less. Yes. Yeah. Yes, not um, until we come up with a time machine, but I that's do, for the next episode. <laughs> I know, talk about something and just like real quick, like five minutes, you're doing some amazing work with the Ukraine. I'd love for you to tell our listeners what it is so we can also help support in that area. Oh, thank you so much. This is so kind of you. So uh, as I mentioned, I'm originally from Russia, but my family is partly from Ukraine. And uh, when the war started, it was a very difficult emotional time for me because I almost felt partly responsible for what Russia was doing, even though I haven't been there in 15 years. And I left because I didn't like the regime that was there in the first place. And as an entrepreneur, I felt that I needed to do more. I wanted to do more. And I felt that I could than just donating however much money I could afford to different organizations. And so I decided to do a crazy thing, which is when I said dream big, dream big. I saw a live stream uh, on Facebook um, somewhere in March of uh, a musician from Chicago connecting with the musician Elviv in the bomb shelter. And they did a performance together and they raised some money for Ukraine. And I thought, oh my God, what's a great idea to bring artists from all over the world in support of Ukraine in an online event and raise money and raise awareness and promote unity and uh, make Ukrainians feel that the world, you know, it's not just an Eastern European issue or Russian issue, Ukrainian issue, the world is against what's going on. And so we created a concert called World Unite from Ukraine for Ukraine, uh, which brought together 22 artists from nine countries. We did it from scratch in four months with no experience in producing nonprofits or music industry. So it is possible if you're an entrepreneur and you have a lot of friends, that's why I say, you know, they have a, the saying in Russia, don't have a hundred rubles, but have a hundred friends. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely true when I uh, created World Unite for Ukraine with my dear friend. And we raised money for the US-Ukraine Foundation. If you want to support that foundation, they've been in business for 30 years. It's the oldest foundation has been working in the United States, supporting Ukraine and doing a lot of great work. You can go on a website called worlduniteforyukraine.com and click a donate button and it'll take it to the GoFundMe campaign. Uh, but any, you know, doesn't need to be this foundation specifically. I think anything that uh, you can do uh, will help. Just uh, as a reference, I know of another fund that gives cash to refugees and $150 supports a family in Ukraine for one week. And $150 in New York is a dinner. And yeah, so yeah. this is for just- one person. Uh, <laughs> one person. For one person. For yeah. one person at a, you know, reasonably, well good restaurant yeah so it doesn't you don't if you think oh i don't have you know i cannot donate a lot of money if you just donate that dinner then one family will be able to live for a month yeah that's important thank you for sharing that also so how can our listeners contact you we've got your website we've got your linkedin profile but please go ahead and tell us that goes out in our in all of the podcast stations that we distribute and also on our YouTube page. So always happy to talk to any entrepreneur 
uh, they can book uh, a 30-minute consultation with me. It's free. We can talk about anything, their troubles, their finance problems, their business plan, anything they want to discuss, or they just want to connect to a fellow entrepreneur who has been from ups and downs and understands very well what they're going through. Or they can contact me on LinkedIn. They can uh, send me a request and uh, write a private message. I respond to everything, and I will be very happy to connect with everybody and to hear from them. Thank you. Well, I want to tell you, thank you so much for being a guest. This has been something I was looking forward to ever since we had that first conversation at, well, second, I don't know, where we were talking about Black Mary and went, boo, she's like super tuned in to what the future is. So I knew you'd be great for that, but also because you're like wicked smart in finance. Well, thank you so much. You know, when I got your questions, I was so excited to come to the podcast because I've also done a lot of podcasts and these were very interesting questions. Good. So I was very excited to uh, to come and talk to you. Very wow. happy to be introduced. I look forward to having more conversations and setting up our book club. Yes, yes, absolutely. Let's, let's touch base next week. And thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. So we want to thank our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, and thank you to our production team, Ayana Sanders, and our video interns, Josue Gonzalez, Gio Vargas, Dina Burks, and Lester Eccles. Our music is by Sophie Lloyd, and if you would like to have your inclusion tip of the week shared on our show, record your tip, send the audio file to info at e4c.tech, and include your name, job role, and where you work. We will email you our Intern Pursuit Game green screens for your next video conference call. Be sure to visit Employers for Change. That is the hosting company here for this podcast, Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future. And thank you for supporting the Intern Whisperer by subscribing to our show on Podbean or your favorite podcast channel.